0: Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 1st, 2017. I'm Steve Mirsky. On this episode...
1: One potential outcome of all this genetic technology and genetic testing is abortion. Not that it is the right decision or the wrong decision, but it is... One reason why people do testing.
0: That's award winning journalist Bonnie Rockman. She was a staff writer for Time Magazine and a parenting and health columnist for Time.com. And she's contributed to the New York Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, MIT Tech Review, as well as Scientific American. And her new book from Scientific American and Farah Strauss and Giroux is The Gene Machine How Genetic Technologies Are Changing the Way We Have Kids. And the kids we have. Rockman lives in Seattle with her husband and their three kids, so we talked by phone. This book talks about Pandora's box, it talks about genies in bottles. And and I think that's appropriate because we're still at the very early stages of this business.
1: Exactly. I, I love that you uh, that you describe it that way. So there are certainly lots of examples in the book that would line up with a Pandora's box scenario. Um, you know, people, what I found in researching this book is that people think in some situations that they want information. And then when they find out that information, they are taken aback. Because they learn, um, they get test results that they weren't expecting. I think it's human nature to, um, to wax optimistic, um, which is a, a, a trait. I'm sure that has enabled us to, um, to persevere through generations. But, um, when it comes to testing, you know, obviously you're not always going to get a result that you find Reassuring, and in um, I you know I describe in the book this um uh, situation in which um, a family who lives outside of Philadelphia had testing, had genetic testing for their child who was discovered at birth via standard newborn screening uh, to have a degree of hearing loss, and so the family was trying to figure out. What was the cause of the hearing loss it didn't run in their family and um, they were referred to a genetics clinic and they figured oh it's nothing genetic we don't you know this isn't we don't have any family history and um, the test was run and it did not reveal the cause of their little boy's hearing loss but it did reveal that he was missing several genes um, and then when they had further testing, it was revealed that the mom is missing those same genes. So she passed on this gene deletion to her son and the family was extremely upset because they didn't realize that they would find out this additional information. Um, so they were just looking to try and figure out what was going on why their son couldn't hear Well, enough. (laughs) Although when I met him, to me, he seemed, he, um, he seemed to be able to hear just fine. So I'm sure the hearing loss was not, um, was not extreme. But, you know, they ended up learning this information that really made them think differently about their child. They're really, um, there, there's this undercurrent of worry and concern, um, about these missing genes and, um, they, they wish that they, they wish that they didn't know.
0: And as genetic testing becomes cheaper and more widespread and perhaps eventually mandatory, we're gonna find that everybody's got something, even if the odds on it becoming an issue throughout one's life are minuscule or really just not a factor at all, but the but something is going on genetically
1: exactly exactly we all have hundreds of mutations now that is something that really surprised me i didn't realize that and i um i opened the book um by talking about um when i had my first child and i had this amazing pediatrician he was super personable and he would you know start the checkup and you check out the baby and um end it by saying he's perfect it was the most amazing thing to hear but of course it's not true N- no one's perfect, and that 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 you know that saying when you examine it from a genetics perspective it's really, really true. It's not only kind of no one's perfect from a psychological perspective, but no one is perfect from a biological perspective either
0: and this could become a you know in some ways for a lot of people a bigger problem than if they had found anything that Medical science currently, or in the near future, has has an answer for.
1: Right, exactly. So sometimes, um, you know, genetic. So practically every day, it seems like you'll read the newspaper, or you'll be online, or you'll hear on on NPR. um, There's some. um, This new gene. This gene has been newly associated with this disease, and. Um, or that gene has been um, newly associated with risk factors for this condition. So this, it's this constant uh, process of what's called gene discovery. And gene discovery is a really amazing thing because the more that you're able to link genes with diseases or specific genetic conditions, then that gives you a basis from which to start working uh, working on treatments or working on, you know, on the holy grail, a cure, However, sometimes you find different uh, genetic changes are not associated with anything specific and known. They're not a, what's called, uh, you know, what's considered to be deterministic. So you're left with this information that is not very clear. Um, it could be concerning. It could not be concerning. And then you have to figure out what to do with that, with that uncertainty.
0: Especially when, as you say, it's not deterministic, it's only probabilistic. And suddenly you're faced with the knowledge that, uh, in my, in, during the rest of my life, I have a 50% chance of developing this condition. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is, is the breast cancer genes, which uh, greatly raise a woman's uh, potential for getting breast cancer. However, that's still only a minority of all the breast cancer cases. So you talk about somebody in the book who takes the prophylactic steps to make sure that she does not come down with the condition, but she still has the one in eight chance that any other woman has.
1: Right, right. Yes, you can't lower your risk beyond what the average risk in the population is. So um, and that's the case with so with so many genes is that they don't um, they don't correlate with certainty. So they correlate with increased risk. And everyone's um, ability to manage increased risk and tolerance for increased risk is is really different. It's very individual. So in some cases, proceeding with genetic testing may be exactly the right thing to do for one person. And for another person, you know, it may, it may really freak a person out. So I think it's important to know how you process information, how much information you, you're comfortable receiving and, and, and not necessarily to, um, to simply take the recommendation of a doctor or a genetic counselor to take that recommendation, but in addition to add on what your own personal tolerance for risk is.
0: And that's very difficult for lay people.
1: It can be really difficult. One critical link here is the genetic counseling profession. So the more that genes are associated with disease, then the more people are going to be interested in testing themselves for predisposition to disease or, um, you know, to see if they actually have early signs of disease. And... Genetic counselors are really the people, they're really the experts who can say, Okay, this is not really an. Impl- <laughs> this is not something that you need to be doing, or this is definitely something that you need to be doing. Um, there was recently a study just in the past couple weeks about women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and whether they are offered genetic testing to see if they have a hereditary mutation. And apparently, if I'm remembering this research correctly more women more women want to be offered testing than are currently offered testing so even you know physicians and perhaps genetic counselors are not um, getting to these women genetic counselors are not everywhere in this country um, they tend to cluster uh, more at major medical centers and for example um, you know if you're you're pregnant and you're trying to decide whether to have different sorts of genetic testing, if you live in a small town in rural America, um, it is highly unlikely that there is a genetic counselor who is attached to your OBGYN's office, whereas... Um, You know, in in contrast, if you're living in New York City and you're going to a major medical center for your prenatal care, there are probably a whole bunch of genetic counselors who are affiliated. And it's the genetic counselors who have the expertise to guide people and to say, this is what this test can reveal. Do you want this information? Would it change for example, the course of your pregnancy? Why do you even want to be doing these this testing um, you know what are the pros and cons and they can sort of guide you toward making an educated informed decision
0: Yeah you talk right up front in the book about your experience in North Carolina as uh, part of a Jewish couple Ashkenazi Jewish background which uh, has a, a much higher uh, risk for Tay Sachs disease in a newborn, and Tay Sachs is uh, a devastating condition where uh, the child is only going to live to be three or four years old max, right?
1: Right, exactly. And it's just a terrible, deteriorating quality of life. Um, you know, in those several years, it's re- really, really terrible disease that certainly most people would want to avoid at 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 any cost.
0: And in North Carolina, which does not have a, a huge Jewish population, there there was not uh, the same kind of capacity for testing as in New York, where I am, which does have a, a very large Jewish population and where... It's it's standard to be right. tested, right? And so
1: that's something that is that women that couples really need to be um, really need to be aware of and on the lookout for. So depending where you are geographically in this country um, will often dictate what sort of genetic testing is recommended to you before or during pregnancy. Um, when I was living in North Carolina and I went to my OBGYN and asked about testing, he said. Um, you just need to be tested for tay sachs And because I'm a journalist and I had already done all this research, I said very respectfully, actually, I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, there's a center for Jewish genetic disease and here's, here are the diseases they recommend. And at the time when I was pregnant with my, um, with my firstborn, that was back in, uh, 2002. And I think there were about nine or 10 diseases at that time. And he just thought I was, um, Overreacting. He didn't think it was necessary. And the interesting thing, the, I, I don't, I don't think I I include this in the book, but the interesting thing is that the doctor was actually Jewish himself and, and, and he still didn't even know about the importance of expanding beyond just Tay Sachs. So, um, so people really need to be, um, people really need to be vigilant. It's, um, you know, unfortunately the burden is, As in so many things in healthcare, the burden is really on the patient. No one's going to advocate for you as you can do for yourself. So it's incumbent upon people to really be educated and to go into their prenatal visits, um, having, um, at least a basic understanding of what testing is out there and in order to, um, in order to be able to get the, the, the best prenatal care.
0: Yeah, I have uh friends who are Jewish a couple and they were both carriers for Tay-Sachs. Mm-hmm. And and when they got pregnant, uh even with the genetic counseling, they were still freaked out and they called me, you know, as as you know, as a science journalist. All our friends think that we're doctors. <laughs> right. Which we are not. And but they called me and you know, my my rudimentary understanding of the genetics of Tay-Sachs is what I passed on to them. Uh, and even though they had professional genetic counselors who were helping them through this process. And it turned out that the the kid was was fine and is now a, a junior in college studying nutritional sciences. Um, they you know to hear it from a friend of theirs somehow validated what the genetic counselors were telling them even more.
1: Yeah. Well, so if your, if your friend's child is now in college, um, so I, I am, I am, Assuming that your friends just kind of opted for luck of the draw, because in a situation where you have two parents who are carriers for Tay Sachs, which is um, considered an autosomal recessive disease, which refers to you know how it's inherited, um, so your friends would have had a 25% chance of pa- of having an affected child so you know they won the lottery they had a 75% chance of having a child who was not affected by the disease and that that is you know fortunately exactly what happened but in Um, increasingly, people are able to take advantage of a technology called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis if they know that they're both carriers and they don't want to take that risk, that 25% risk of having an affected child. So the unfortunate thing about it is that you have to go through IVF in vitro fertilization and instead of just getting pregnant the regular way. So you go to an IVF clinic, you make embryos, and then um, those embryos are analyzed for the presence of the mutation. So in your friend's case, it would be for the presence of the genetic mutation that indicates uh that that Tay-Sachs disease is present. And then those embryos that have the, that are are positive for Tay-Sachs would be set aside. And only those embryos that don't have Tay-Sachs would then be transferred to a mother's uterus. So it's a pretty amazing technology and it is certainly a way to sidestep a fatal genetic disease. Um, what's interesting is that um, as science gets more sophisticated, we're able to do um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for more and more diseases. And now people are starting to actually um, do that to avoid the, the the chance of passing on a breast cancer mutation, which is, you know, clearly... Um, it's more fraught than I mean, doing than than using this technology to avoid Tay Sachs. So Tay Sachs is a death sentence. And not many people would argue with using the technology to avoid having a baby who has Tay Sachs, who's destined to not even make it to kindergarten. But with something like breast cancer, which we, you know, just talked about a couple of minutes ago you're at increased risk, but it doesn't even necessarily mean you will get the disease. You know, is it, is it right? Is it moral or ethical in those situations to, um, to select embryos that don't have a BRCA or a, a breast cancer mutation?
0: Yeah. And the, the issue that we, we haven't uh, confronted head on is abortion here. And, right. and the question, you know, e- even, uh, discarding IVF embryos is considered by some to be morally unacceptable, and abortion obviously is considered morally unacceptable by some people who who would argue, and this includes Orthodox Jews who uh, might be carrying a a Tay-Sachs baby, who would go ahead with the birth anyway rather than have the abortion.
1: It is very complicated. Abortion, um, you know, when I was researching this book... um, i was I was speaking with um I was speaking with you know various people kind of talking over the ideas and the themes, and it was um i guess not surprising that abortion was so polarizing, so there were these two pretty clear cut groups one would say you're not going to talk about you're not going to mention abortion in the book are you because you know like p- people can't handle that I, that would that would just completely derail it and I, uh, others said to me oh well you know you, you're going to definitely have a chapter about abortion right and i said yes i, I mean I, I was always planning on that to me it feels um it feels disingenuous to not talk about abortion it's kind of the elephant in the room, but I feel like it's not being truthful to not acknowledge that one potential outcome of all this genetic technology and genetic testing is abortion. Not that it is the right decision or the wrong decision, but it is one reason why people do testing.
0: Absolutely. And I was thinking when I was looking at the book about how the first kind of genetic testing of newborns, for PKU, was was such a breakthrough because it was such a clear cut situation. I mean, if you if you have PKU as an infant, uh, refresh my memory if I'm wrong about this. You develop a devastating brain syndrome. Uh, but, right,
1: right. It can cause brain damage.
0: And um, all for you sure. have, and all you have to do to avoid it is basically not drink diet soda. <laughs>
1: Right, you have. <laughs> you're right. You have to. Um, you have to restrict your diet, and so that was kind of, kind of a no brainer. There, there's no reason not to do this test. There's nothing bad about knowing that you have PKU. It is life saving. But in certain other situations, in fact, in so many other situations, it is incredibly complicated because um, the presentation of a disease, like take cystic fibrosis, for example. Some people, um, some people would really, really, really not want to have a child with cystic fibrosis, which is a lung disease that can be incredibly debilitating and Typically um, leads to um, to premature death, and other people are not as concerned about it. And then, when you think about the presentation of cystic fibrosis, there are some people who have cystic fibrosis who are um, spend a ton of time in the hospital and whose life is really compromised. And then there are other people who have cystic fibrosis, kids who you know play sports and are really just have a much um, a, a much more, uh, moderate, uh, manifestation of the disease. And that's the kind of thing that, um, that often, you know, down syndrome comes to mind as well. Often you just don't know you can, you know, learn during pregnancy that you have a, that, that your fetus has a a certain condition, cystic fibrosis or, or down syndrome, but you can't know until that baby becomes a child and that child continues to grow, exactly how severe, how severely that condition will be manifested.
0: And you talk in the book about efforts to actually silence the extra chromosome in Down syndrome, which are ongoing.
1: Yeah, which is a pretty amazing, um, amazing scientific feat. Um, But what is so complicated about that? I mean, all of these issues that I explore in the book. And and the reason I'm so interested in this is because it's not just straight science, it's science married to ethics. So you can imagine that if you have a child with Down syndrome, and you love that child, and you th- think theoretically, would I want to silence that extra copy of my daughter's 21st chromosome that, you know, that, Character the 21st, the extra copy of a 21st chromosome is what characterizes Down syndrome. And so if you could silence it, you would essentially, it's not that you would take away the Down syndrome, but you would certainly tamp down a lot of the symptoms of it. And if you love your child for who she is, Maybe you don't want to do that or maybe you feel very, very conflicted about the thought of doing that and most parents... With whom I spoke, they don't know how to feel about this. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you want to give your child every opportunity. Every parent does. That's kind of, that's sort of the job description for being a parent. But then when it comes to a child with Down syndrome, what does it mean to give your child every opportunity? And if you're trying to actually change that, you know, trying to, to tinker with genetics, then is that acceptable and and so i think morally a lot of parents are are struggling to to figure out how they feel about um you know so, something like silencing the extra 21st chromosome that is um that is still very much in the research stage being done you know in in petri dishes not in people uh, yet um but there are others other research going on about medication that a pregnant woman could take Um, if if she finds out that that her fetus has Down syndrome, a pregnant woman can take um, medication to to improve cognitive development of her fetus or medication in children or in young adults or in older adults to improve memory. Um, You know, is that right? Is that it's very, um, a lot of people have very, very strong opinions. But I guess I would argue that parents of kids with typically developing children try to improve their kids' cognition every day um, by doing things like, I mean, okay, yesterday was Thursday. I took my son to math club. He's 14. At the, There's a math club run by the math department at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And um you know, did he kind of fight me on it? In the, at the, back in September, when I said, "Oh, here's this math club. You really love math. I think you should go." Well, yeah, he wanted to just play Pokemon Go, but I said, "No, you know, you're going to try math club. If you hate it, then we'll talk again." And he actually ended up loving it. But so, why am I doing that? So, is that really any different than a mom of a child with Down syndrome down syndrome trying to do, um, trying to? give that child medication to um, boost his um, his memory processing? I, I don't really think so.
0: Yeah, this whole thing, it's, it's just so not black and white, and it's not even gray. There are thousands of shades of gray involved in all these issues. You know, you mentioned that it's not only biology or biomedicine, it's ethics, but it's also culture. I mean, you talk in the book about the deaf culture, I have a whole branch of my family who are congenitally deaf, and they're all incredibly high-achieving people who have gone to Gallaudet College, famous Washington, D.C. University for for deaf people. And when I'm with them, you know, I'm, I'm the one who has a disability be- right. because they are all conversing completely fluently with each other, using American sign language and you know I'm standing around to, uh, I, I get a little bit of it but you know I'm the one who has to have things written out for me and explained to me so right th- there's a case where I mean th- there's no there's no culture among people who wear glasses who who want to say uh, we shouldn't wear our glasses we should be myopic and embrace it but <laughs> <laughs> right but there is <laughs>
1: But- I'm glad that there is no such culture <laughs> <All right. laughs> I would not fare well
0: I wouldn't either we'd be we, we we wouldn't be able to drive. We'd have a lot of problems but <laughs> in the deaf community if uh if an outsider were to say, well, if there's genetic testing that could uh tell you that your child would be deaf and you could abort or would treat your child uh in utero so that uh the deafness is avoided or Later on, you know, this whole issue of cochlear implants has been an issue for years, and there are members of the deaf community who uh, would want to get the cochlear implant, and there are other members who say, no, this is my culture, this is, you know, to me this is equivalent of almost an ethnicity, and so I don't want to do anything about it, I don't consider that I have a problem.
1: And then you have to consider that there are people who will take it even a step further. It's not that they, not only that they don't want to, that they don't see deafness as a quote unquote problem, but they actually want to select embryos that will that, that will have congenital deafness or dwarfism. It happens with that also. So there have been instances where people actually tried to use that, uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis technology that we talked about, um, in regard to breast cancer and to tay but to use that instead of, um, instead of to, uh, rather than to eliminate a disease or a, 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 in that case, you know, Tay-Sachs breast cancer, you're trying to eliminate, to choose an, an embryo that doesn't have a disease. So you're working toward elimination of disease, but, um, Some people, you know, who are um, within the dwarf community or within the deaf community actually want to select for a disability. Now, they don't consider it a disability. They consider it, as you said, part of a thriving, uh, vibrant culture. So they actually want to have a child like them. And when you think about that, it's pretty normal because if you and, you know, if my husband and I were both deaf, well, maybe it would be a little bit weird to have a hearing child. And I mean, everyone always wants to have You want to have children who are like you in the sense that they embody, hopefully they embody your good characteristics and not so many of your bad, you know, of your bad traits. But if you think that deafness is part of, you know, part of a vibrant culture, then it would make sense that you would want to have a child who joins that culture.
0: And this is where I I think things get really gray. But let me use the example: if you're if you're a a dwarf couple and your your child's going to be a dwarf, or if you're you're not a dwarf couple, you're going to have. But the the genetic testing shows that you're going to have a child with dwarfism, and so to some listeners it might be obvious. Well, you should have an abortion. Okay. So let's say that that's that's if you feel that that's obvious as a listener fine now what about this situation uh the child it does not have dwarfism but genetically it's pretty easy to predict that the, the, it's a it's a boy and he's not going to get any taller than five foot two being a five foot two man in this society is very difficult you're gonna make. Are you
1: speaking from personal experience?
0: No, no. I'm actually. I'm five seven, so I, you know, I don't have to deal with the issues. You know, I deal with it a little bit, but not like somebody who's 5'2". Five five, a 5'2 five two guy is gonna make less money. Is gonna have for sure more more limited job opportunities. Is gonna have more trouble finding a mate. Uh, there are there are so many potential struggles. For just being in the in the so-called normal range, but at the bottom of the normal range, that then yes. the then the question comes up. You know, do the parents want to inflict that on the child?
1: Yeah, there's a whole spectrum, and what is complicated is that who's the arbiter of where we draw the line? That that's what really fascinates me about this topic, and what that's <laughs> why I wrote a book. I, I want to, I. I, I, I want to know where are their red lines? Where are they? Where do they exist? Who draws them? So who would decide, you know, what you might think would be unacceptable? A, a disability in your eyes could be um, an ability in someone else's eyes.
0: I mean, even just being left-handed has its drawbacks.
1: Uh, are you left-handed?
0: No, <laughs> I but, am. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I love being left-handed. It's like it's kind of it's like a, a, a microcosm of sort of what maybe I can envision what deaf culture is like. Whenever I meet another lefty, there's this, um, there's this sense of of pride and of you know being in this kind of um, this. The fraternity, this, where, um, you know, we're considered more creative and my, um, my youngest daughter is left-handed and we always high five each other, um, you know, when it comes up. So it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, it starts filtering down and you have to try and figure out where we draw the line. For example, what if you find out during, you know, just through ultrasound during pregnancy that your baby has a cleft palate or cleft lip, that, that can be fixed surgically um quite easily and uh, you know would you though then say okay well because i found that out and I, I should i start you know should i just i'll just have an abortion and i'll try again so kind of the more that testing is able to reveal during pregnancy the more possibility there is that people are potentially going to become less discerning about what they find acceptable, you know, in terms of disability versus unacceptable.
0: And that's what has a lot of ethicists worried because, the, you know, this could be considered to be a, a step on the way to full eugenics,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, um, there is a father, um, who I, I quote from his book, in my book, um, and he has a chapter in his book about his daughter, who is a dwarf, um, called the new eugenics. So, you know, the, the old eugenics per se, um, you know, really probably reached its zenith during the, the Nazi era, but certainly went on in this country, um, for, for decades, where we would try to um, restrict reproduction of people who um, who were considered less than or not as smart as. And um, so the difference with the old eugenics, the old eugenics was state sponsored. So that is a really important distinction that was pointed out to me by Paul Lombardo, who is um, a law professor at Georgia State University, and he researches eugenics. So very, very big distinction if it's state-sponsored. So it is mandated by the government. So what we're doing now, and the reason that this book entitles a chapter, The New Eugenics, is that we are looking at people, and we are looking at tests, and we are intersecting those two to say... Okay. Well, what do I find acceptable? What, you know, is, is disability A acceptable to me? Is disability B acceptable to me? And how far am I willing to go to prevent this or to treat this? And so the distinction, I, I think it is, I think it is, a, think it is a, a critical distinction that it today is not the government that is mandating it, but rather it is technology that is allowing us these choices, and ultimately, it's parents who are making the decisions.
0: That's one of the great things about the book. Is <laughs> this this might sound like it's a drawback, but there are no answers here. The book, though, does a great job of laying out what the questions are, and and the questions have come fast and furious, boy.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. I'm glad you, <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. I certainly think, um, I've been, um, wondering how people would perceive, w- would interpret the fact that there are no answers. But I didn't really know how I would give answers and still be authentic to the topic and true to myself because I don't think that there are answers. And for the very reason that the answer for me May not be the answer for you because these calculations are so individual and so personal that what would feel um, absolutely intolerable to my family might feel like a blessing to another family.
0: Bonnie Rockman's website is bonnierockman.com. That's B O N N I E R O C H M A N. Com. If you're in the New York City area, she'll be at the 92nd Street Y the evening of June 8th as part of a discussion called Genetic Testing What Parents to Be Should Know, along with bioethicist Art Kaplan, genetic counselor Shivani Nazareth, and moderator Randy Hutter Epstein. that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the education page and find out about science experiments to do with your kids, as well as citizen science projects in which you can help researchers working on everything from figuring out where plastic ends up in the ocean to finding new exoplanets. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mirsky. Thanks for clicking on us.